Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've caused it to be written. Thank you that you've protected it for your church. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. 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 So the next section of Ecclesiastes that we're looking into, um, it's kind of a repeat a little bit of, of what we've kind of already talked about, but there's some new stuff in there. But I figured that we're going, what I want to do is I want to just kind of uh, look at it, kind of work through it very briefly. So verses 12 through 17, we're going to kind of skim through. We're going to read them. We're going to skim through them. And then we're going to spend the majority of our time with verses, um, uh, was it, 18 through, through 26. Those are where we're going to spend most of our time. So let's just begin by looking at 12 through 17. This is the teacher, the king, King Solomon, So then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fools walk in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise must die. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I'm telling you, this guy woke up Monday morning and he just wrote this entire book. Because that's just, that's beyond toast landing jelly side down. He's just kind of bummed out. But what we find is he's revisiting something that he's already kind of looked at and pressed into, the idea of wisdom and madness. Not madness, he's going crazy, but just kind of living foolishly. So madness, folly. He's already been there. He's already looked at it, and it seems that he's going back to take another look. He's going back to see maybe, possibly, he might have missed something that was there that he didn't catch or that he didn't see. And so he wants to explore the whole thing again. Now, what he comes to, this conclusion, that he says, well, you know what? From an earthly perspective, wisdom is better than foolishness. To live in, even if it's a culturally wise mindset, is better than living in just off-the-hook foolishness. He compares it to light and dark. Wisdom is light. Foolishness is darkness. And so he sees value in wisdom. Again, he's coming from an earthly perspective, under-the-sun perspective. He sees value in it. But then he comes to the end of verse 14. He says, But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. The same fate overtakes both the wise and the foolish, and that is, they both die. And so, if you live your life wisely, the end is the same as if you live your life foolishly. And then he kind of bums us out even more with verse 16. He says, for like the wise, the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. So even if you live a wise life, there will come a time where you will be forgotten. You're going to die, and then people will forget that you ever lived. Happy Sunday. And it's the same lot for the foolish. 
If you live like a fool all your life, though you might be remembered a little bit longer because you were so stupid, but at the end, you are going to be forgotten just like the, the person who lived with wisdom. And so this whole thing he's wrestling with, he goes back, he tries to revisit. Maybe I missed something. Maybe there's something there. Well, maybe, okay, yeah, but, but wisdom and is better than foolishness. But, you know, in the end, we all die. And so he hits verse 17 and he says this. So I hated life <laughs> because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He comes to this conclusion. He sits down. And he says, now I, I hate life. This is a big deal. This is not I hate broccoli. This is I hate life. Like if somebody said this to you sitting across the table, you would be concerned and you would want to talk to them and you, would, might, you might recommend that they talk to somebody else because there is a, a deep anxiety and depression that is taking place here. He says, everything is meaningless. All of the work that I've done is just grievous and meaningless. It holds no value. In fact, life, just for the sake of living, is just a waste of time. And he's grown to hate it. And he touches at the, and in verse 17, he touches on this idea of work. The work that is done under the sun. We know that he worked, as a king would work, a lot. But as a king, he doesn't work the way we work. He's got it easy. He's, he's king. And so he thinks of stuff, and then he has people do the work. So he thinks, I want to build a reservoir. I need 1,500 guys to dig the hole. And he manages said work. See, he has never driven home from work on 84 in Waterbury at 5 o'clock. He has no idea what's that, what that's like. He's never had it hit his sales quota for the month, or he wasn't going to get his commission. He's never had to pick up the slack of, of the unmotivated people on his team at the company. He's never gotten called at the last minute to work on the weekends. And yet he's like, you know, all of my work is meaningless. All, all of it is just one big grievous toilsome, blah, I hate life, wah. It, it does sound like he's, like he's just whining, like wah, I'm king, wah, I don't have enough money. And this is, this is, this is why it, he's bummed out about it. Check this out. Verse 18. I hated all the things I had toiled for, toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because he has this realization that he must leave them to the one who comes after me. You know, many people within our culture, they expect work or your job to give them purpose or value or meaning to your life. That, that you are defined by what you do. And, and it's just not true. Let me just say that right away. You are not defined by what you do. You're defined about who you are, not by what you do. But, but, but so many people in our culture, we kind of hinge upon the definition of who you are is by what you do. And it's just this quiet, subversive mentality. And you know how I know? It's because when you meet somebody new, 
What is one of the first questions that gets put out in that initial conversation? So what do you do for a living? It's like you want to know. And, and, and like you're going to judge them. Oh, you're a garbage man? Mm. So what do you do for a living? You, you know, or, oh, you're a doctor? So, yeah, well, what do you do? Oh, I have this thing in my throat. And, and you know, we, we want to know. And I'm not mocking garbage men, please. That's not my point. We don't define who we are by what we do. But we have this cultural judgment that takes place when, because we want to find out who does what, where, for how long. And so we tried not to, but we value jobs and we let that define us. But the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is telling us, you know, if, if you think work is where you're going to find meaning in life, you're solely, solely wrong in that. You are going to be very, very disappointed if you're going to look for meaning in what you do in your job, especially if you're trying to look for meaning in the big questions of life. Because let's face it, the majority of us, the majority of us struggle somewhere in our jobs, in our work. It's toilsome. It's hard. If it was something different, they call that vacation, but it's called work for a reason. So you get tired of doing the same old thing over and over again. You have to deal with incompetence and laziness of other people, or you have to deal with your own incompetence or laziness on the job. Their family suffers from the demands of your work. Some people are even pressured into doing things that may be immoral or unethical at their job, questionable. And so as we're confronted with these things, and that's not an extensive list, or an exhaustive list, when we're, when we're confronted with them, we just kind of feel the hardship of our jobs work. It can feel meaningless at times. The Bible calls it toilsome labor. And one of the biggest problems that the teacher sees in all of this is the fact that you are going to work, some of you are going to work very hard, and you're going to accomplish things. You're going to climb the ladder. You're going to have the corporate office you're going to do well, and in the end, remembering that we're all going to die someday, in the end, you have to leave all of that to someone else. All of your hard work, you release it, and it goes to someone else, and he doesn't like it. I hated the thing, all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. You spend all of your life collecting the best collection of collectibles ever on the planet. You work hard every single day, up early, to bed late, 15 hours a day. You have built the empire of empires in whatever business it is. But in the end, you can't take it with you. In the end, it stays behind. No matter how hard you try, no matter how well you plan, you can't take it with you. Nobody has solved the problem yet of, of taking it with them because you can't. The collection goes to the dealer. The house goes to the highest bidder. All your stuff is sold at the estate sale and everything you own will one day no longer be yours. That's just what the teacher is understanding. He is seeing this for what it's worth. And see, here's, here's his frustration. 
So not only are we going to, he's going to have to leave things, all of his stuff. Remember, gardens, parks, houses, fruit trees planted everywhere, reservoirs to water it all. He's going to have to leave it to the one that comes after, after him. And then he says, and who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. It's all meaningless. This too is meaningless. You know, when you, when you pass on whatever it is you're going to pass on, you might get lucky. And it's going to go to someone who has some wisdom, some business savvy maybe. And they're going to build upon what you have created. Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's not. You might get lucky. But when it says, when it uses the word, um, and who knows, that phrase, who knows, in verse 19, it's, it has this negative connotation that, you know what, you just might get a fool. You might get somebody that's going to squander everything that you've worked so hard for, all of the skill, all of the time, all of the effort you put into it all, you're going to end up giving it away, and that person that might receive it is foolish, and it just goes away. It disappears. And from a very literal perspective, no matter who gets what you have worked for, they really don't deserve it because they haven't done anything to get what you've worked for. We have this this thing within us that says, you know, all the things that I've achieved, well, I should be able to keep, which is true. And you will for a time until you have to give it away. And eventually, if you don't give it away, it will be taken from you because, like he said, we suffer the same fate. And 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 he's wrestling with this. Why? Why does it work this way? I've worked and I've worked and I've worked and I've worked and I'm going to have to give it to someone. I don't know who's going to get it. They may, be, they may be wise. They may be foolish. But the fact is, I don't like it. I have to give it away. And he's aggravated. And he, and he presses on. He says, So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. Again, it's too meaningless. It's a great misfortune. One person does all the work, and somebody's going to reap the reward who hasn't done any of the work. The person who has the wisdom and the knowledge to start the business, has the vision to create it, has the work ethic to grow it, puts in the time, takes all the risks. In the end, they are going to have to give it away. Now, he is all, he's speaking in generalities right now, like this is going to happen to all of us. But he's also kind of lamenting a little bit about himself. The guy's built houses and palaces and, and a temple and parks and vineyards. He's managed all of those people to make sure everything came out the way he has envisioned it. He was the manager of managers. He's got, he amassed gold and silver beyond what kings could ever imagine. He had herds and flocks to feed all of his slaves who were so many slaves that they were having baby slaves and they were all belonged to him. And he knows that he's going to have to give it all away. It will not be his forever. And for Solomon, it's his son that's going to receive it. Now, I'm not sure if, if, if Solomon knows the character of Rehoboam, because that's who's going to get everything. 
I'm not sure if he knows what kind of man he is going to turn out to be, but the scripture tells us what kind of man he is. And he's an idiot. He's an arrogant, mean-spirited fool. And this is who is getting all of this that Solomon has created. He, his son neglected the wisdom of the elders and listened to the same arrogant, foolish advisors that he surrounded himself with and everything that Solomon created and worked for just got blown up by his son. All of it gets strewn about and the majesty that he created goes away. And isn't that one of the great frustrations that, that we have? Like, like we want to, I think all of us in some way, shape, or form, we want to leave something behind. We want to just leave a little bit of a, of a legacy behind, make a little bit of a name for ourselves. I don't mean like Forbes magazine, fame and fortune, but like we want to be remembered and we want to give away something worthwhile. But the reality of it is it doesn't matter in the end, we are forced to give it up. And there will become a point where we don't have control over who gets it. And depending on who takes over, that legacy that you so desire will either just disappear, or I mean, it's going to last a while, right? You hope. But eventually it goes away. Who remembers Bradley's? Old people. Who remembers Woolworth? At one, yeah, even less. Caldors. Where are they? They're gone. And so it will be. And so it will be with our things. And then it's not just like we have to give it away, but he, but he kind of, he has, it has to do with like the sweat of our brow stuff. What do people get for all of the toil and anxious striving which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. <laughs> Even at night, their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. It's, it's, it's toil, but it's not just striving. It's anxious striving. Physical, emotional, mental, even spiritual. you got to earn a living. And every job... Every job that's out there, no matter what the job is, every occupation has its own unique demands that it makes on the people who are doing that job. All of them do. And don't think stay-at-home moms have it any easier. They probably have it much harder. And so there's these unique challenges that face us all in whatever job that we have. No matter what work we do, it can in some area, take a toll on us, tire us out. There's something that frustrates you, something you're just like, I don't like this part of it. He calls it pain and grief. I think if you just take a millisecond, you can probably relate to pain and grief in your work and know what he's talking about. You know, sometimes... Sometimes we don't make enough money at our job, and so we struggle to support our family. Sometimes there's not enough work, and we get laid off. Other times there's too much work, and it pulls us away from healthy rhythms of life and healthy rhythms of, with God. You turn into a workaholic, or there's not enough work. 
whatever, whatever the story is, there are moments in your life where your job steals sleep from you. You can't sleep. You, you toss. You turn. You don't have any peace in your brain. And from a very earthly perspective, a worldly perspective, it feels like it's going to last all of your days. From the beginning of your life to the end, you are sentenced to hard labor. That's what the teacher is dealing with. See, the bottom line in all this is if you are looking for your job to define you, if you are looking to your job to give you significance, you're gonna be disappointed. You will be disappointed. No matter what you do, no matter how how high profile your position may be, from an under-the-sun perspective, it's just gonna fall flat. Eventually, it will fall flat. For almost two chapters now in the book of Ecclesiastes, we've been looking at a lot of just bummy out, cloudy sky, no silver lining writing from this guy. Again, Monday morning, toast landed jelly side down. He is fed up and he just emotionally throws up on the parchment writing. But now there's going to be a change. Now there's going to be a, a little bit of a twist. Because of all this depressing, I hate life stuff, he's going to begin to realize and see something and bring something into focus that he has yet to in all of his writings. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? The teacher is now pointing us, or pointing himself, to God. And so he's like, the the world has nothing to offer us from an under-the-sun worldly perspective. But then there's God. And God changes the whole picture. God changes the whole story. This is a turning point in the book. Because with God, there is hope. And he now sees the difference. He's beginning to see the difference. There's life without the Lord, and there's life with the Lord. There is life just under the sun, and there's life recognizing God is the creator of everything under the sun. And we can go right to that creator who sits above the sun, above the heavens. And just as there's meaninglessness here, when we look to God, he then gives meaning to those things that seem meaningless, that seem uneventful, that seem to suck the life out of us with him. They actually can give life to us. He says, for without him, who can find enjoyment? He's explored all of these things. Wine, women, and song over the past few weeks. And yet now it's changed in him. And he looks to the Lord. Now he eats and drinks. And he finds enjoyment in his toil. Why? What's the difference now? Well, God makes the difference. Us looking to him makes the difference. There's no way you are going to find lasting joy. 
deep down, it doesn't matter what life throws at you joy without the Lord being part of your life. And now he's stopped, the teacher has stopped taking pleasure for himself and he receives it as God's gift to him, a blessing. Paul writes to Timothy, says, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected when received with thanksgiving. Everything that God has created is good and shouldn't be rejected when it's received with thanksgiving. This is not license to abuse anything in God's good creation. But this is, a, this is kind of a call to the church to live a life of thankfulness and live in the liberty that God has given us, not to engage sin or to participate in evil, but to recognize who God is and all of the goodness that he has given us. Recognizing his blessings to us should encourage within us a heart of worship, that we would worship him. I can say this about the church because I'm part of the church and, and I recognize this in myself. We need to really learn that the goodness that we experience in life, the blessings that we experience in life, even the work that we do in life is God's blessing to us. We talked about it last week. And see, sometimes I feel very entitled to things. Like, I pray, probably more than some of you do, so my prayer should be answered in, in greater detail than yours. And, and, I, and, and, and I, I memorize Bible verses. Mm-hmm. Chapter and verse, I memorize them. And so I'm thinking that on the totem pole of prayer or the response to, I, God should, God should answer. I'm entitled to a little bit more. I have to put up with you people. And so God should answer my prayers and talk to me. Amen. Amen. (laughs) But isn't there this entitlement that we all have? But in reality, the only thing we're entitled to is separation from God for eternity. But yet we've been given reconciliation through the cross of Jesus Christ as a free gift by faith. That's the only thing we're entitled to. The only thing we deserve is being separated from God forever. But we've been given this gift, this free gift, the blessing. And I believe that if we can start to see life in the little things as God blessing us and pouring into us, then we will begin to live a life of thankfulness. And as we begin to live a life of thankfulness, then we will begin to live a life of joy. Because here's the kicker. Back to this idea of work, because this is what he's all bummed out about. Work is God's gift to us. I know. Doesn't sound right. But work is our, our gift, our blessing. It was right from the beginning. Adam and Eve, before the fall, they weren't sitting around smoking cigarettes, watching Oprah, eating bonbons. God said, here's the garden, work in it. And work had sacred, holy meaning. And then the fall came, and it just messed it all up. And now it's toilsome and laborsome, and it's just like, ugh, and by the sweat of our brow, we will earn our living. But that's not the way it began. And there's goodness in our jobs, in our work, primarily because we have been made in the image of our God who, who works. He created. He's a creator, and he still works to this day. 
And so we can find pleasure in the things that we work at, aside of what we gain or, or what we can get or, or a paycheck. And we do that by not working for ourselves, but working for the Lord. Not working just so you can climb the ladder, get the paycheck, get more vacation, get the corner office, retire early, but you would work for the Lord, that he would be your boss. Maybe we need to ask ourselves some questions when we get to our desks or whatever you sit at or stand at on Tuesday morning if you have Monday off. Maybe we need to ask the question of, is how I'm doing my job pleasing to the Lord? Do I honor him with my attitude every day when I walk into this place? Do I receive this as a gift from him or do I just complain to him about it? See, that begins to change our focus on from what we do to who we are on the inside. It begins to change our focus from what we're doing to how we're doing it. Look what Paul writes to the Colossian church. He says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Every day when you go to your job, is your attitude, I hate my job, I hate my boss, I hate everything, when, or is it I'm here serving the Lord? I'm here serving the Lord. And the inheritance, the inheritance from the Lord brings us back full circle to what the writer of Ecclesiastes was talking about. What do we gain from all of our hard work? What will we gain from all of our toil? Well, from a worldly perspective, we've got to leave all of this behind for someone else. But when we bring the Lord into the picture, this is what happens. To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God, which is meaningless, so chasing after the winds. It would seem that there's two kinds of people in the mind of the teacher of Ecclesiastes. There are those who are under the favor of a gracious God, and there are those that are lost in their sin. Now, this is not talking about a, a work-based righteousness, but he's talking about people who are under God's grace and mercy now by faith in Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus Christ, you are under God's grace and God's mercy. And for those who have rejected God's grace and mercy by rejecting Jesus Christ, you have a different lot in life. The rejection of Christ means that you are going to hand over all that you've worked for to those who have put their faith in Christ, to those who have pleased him. And how do we please God? It says in Hebrews 11 that we cannot please God any other way except through faith, and that's paraphrased. It's faith that pleases God, period, not how good you can behave, not how many chapters and verses you have memorized, not how many hours you, you pray, 
by faith, you please God. And to those who please God, to those who puts their faith in Jesus, look at our reward. Wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. That is God's gift to us. But for those who reject him, they will end up working and toiling, toilsome labor all their lives, only to come to the end and just, and just give it away. This is the first time in the book, in these two chapters, that the teacher has talked about sin, and he's going to refer to it as he continues on in the rest of the book. It's the sinner who suffers meaninglessness in life because we know that it is God who gives meaning even to the mundane. So here's the thing. Your work, your job will be frustrating. It will continue to be frustrating at times. You will stress out. You will bump heads with people or with bosses. It will not be completely redeemed until Jesus comes back. And then it gets all put back together. Don't think that in the end, at the second coming of Jesus, we're all going to be angels floating on clouds with harps. Even work is going to be redeemed and it will be sacred and holy once more, completely sanctified through the coming of Christ. But even now, even now, your attitude brings sacredness and holiness to the things that you do. He has given each and every person good work to do, good work to do for his glory, that people would recognize your work ethic and how you handle your job because you are not working for the company, you are not working for the boss, but you are working for the Lord. He's given the church good work to do, to go out and proclaim the good news of the gospel, to serve the world, to serve people within our walls and outside of our walls. There is work all around us to do. I'll leave you with this quote from Martin Luther. He said this, the entire world should be full of service to God. Not only the churches, but also the home, the kitchen, the cellar, the workshop, and the fields. Work as though you are working for the Lord and not human masters, not your boss, not your company. And when we, that's our attitude, when that's the posture of our heart, there is something sacred and holy about what we do every single day. Now it was mentioned that we have people that will pray for you at this cross and maybe... Maybe something resonated this morning with you and you hate your job. And those people aggravate you and you're not there yet in this thanking the Lord for your work. Come on up. Pray with some people. Unload that burden before the Lord. Allow some saints to minister to you and watch how God can change that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of work, and though sometimes it doesn't quite feel that way, help us to have a heart that works for you in everything that we do, that we would strive for excellence. Continue to bless us. We thank you for the blessing. Continue to guide us. Thank you for the guidance. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 I love you guys. We'll see you next week.